0: And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my job? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello! Hello! Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Maggie. And I am Harmony. This week we're talking about Dawn by Octavia E. Butler. We're pretty excited. It is very exciting. We are reading the book
1: Lilith's Brood, and this is a part of the Exogenes series, I believe it's called?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, all three books are the whole trilogy. Lilith's Brood is like a, a bind-up of all three.
1: Yes. They're very good thus far.
0: (laughs) They are very good. I really enjoyed Dawn. I picked up this book kind of on a whim a couple of months ago just because I had been like interested in Octavia Butler. And then we decided that we were going to read it for this book club. So I like didn't read it and then happened to read Kindred a couple of weeks ago and was like (laughs) and have been really excited to read this ever since. And it lived up to my expectations. That's going to be fun for you to edit in a way that makes sense. (laughs) that's
1: fun. I think honestly the listeners are used to that sort of noise non-verbal speak okay wonderful so do you want to talk a little bit now you did some research on Butler as an author do you want to talk a little bit about Butler first or do you want to go straight into the summary of the book
0: yeah, let me, uh, let me give you just a little bit of a picture. So Octavia E. Butler, these sources were pulled from her official website and also from an article written by The Independent by a man named Joe Summerlad, which we will link in our episode description. But Octavia Butler was born in 1947. She died in 2006, which I was about to say isn't that long ago. And then I realized that it is in fact 2020. So it's kind of a long time ago now. She was an extremely decorated author. She is one of the very first African American sci-fi, writers of all time. She was also the first science fiction writer of any race of any creed to win the MacArthur Genius Grant, which I thought was really cool. But she is just kind of generally speaking, one of the absolute most decorated sci fi authors of all time. She won pretty much every major award you could think of for almost every single one of her books. She slowed down production at the end of her life. She slowed down writing, which I saw cited for one reason being that she was on a high blood pressure medication, which caused her to become depressed. So she was writing a little bit less at that point. But two quotes I wanted to pull from that independent article, which I thought were so poignant, were the first being, I began writing about power because I had so little. And then the second being, on the impact of race on the genre she loved, Butler's thoughts were sobering. Why aren't there more science fiction Black writers? There aren't because there aren't. What we don't see, we assume can't be. What a destructive assumption. Which, A, I think is extraordinarily powerful, and B, I think, to a certain extent, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago with Johani, publishing hasn't changed that much kind of in in that time like things have gotten better I think especially since she has become such a figurehead African Americans and black people writing science fiction but I just kind of wanted to throw those two quotes out there especially because Lilith's brood and dawn is all about power yeah those are my thoughts about who Butler was as a person and kind of her highlights and just shouting her out for being generally a badass. So if you want to talk about the summary now, that's cool with me. That's awesome. Yeah.
1: Before we talk about the summary, there were a few things there that I thought were interesting to highlight in the book. So human race, I feel like isn't really prominently discussed in this book. And I wonder as someone who has read Octavia Butler before, if race Like, the main character is Black, but you really have to look at that. And I didn't know until one of my friends who is going to be reading this along with us while we podcast pointed it out to me. Like, I didn't know that it was explicitly mentioned that the character was Black at all.
0: Yeah, so Kindred, uh, which is her most famous novel, is all about an African-American woman in the 70s who, for some unknown magical reason, keeps getting Called back to antebellum slavery times in Maryland, and her white husband gets brought back with her at one point, which causes lots of other problems. So, yeah, a lot of her other works do deal more explicitly about race. I would say that this book deals with it more obliquely, especially with the idea of differences between the alien and human race, and also the comments on the fact that the main character is an anthropologist in the book and the comments she has to make about anthropology. But I agree, race plays, I think, a little bit of a lesser role here. I think this book really is more about gender and sexuality identity.
1: Okay, interesting. All right, well, let's get into the summary. And we'll talk more about some of those things that Maggie mentioned about anthropology and stuff later on in the episode. So I wrote a really long summary. So bear with me. And here it is. (laughs) A woman Lilith wakes up in an unknown place after World War Three alone in a room. She is spoken to by an anonymous voice who asks her questions. She refuses to answer. She sleeps, then awakes, something she calls the awakening. Eventually, she meets one of her captors, a creature named Jediah, who claims he is an extraterrestrial and a part of a species called the Owen Collie. So she meets one of these creatures called the Owen Collie, and she's disgusted and frightened by his tentacly appearance. He's like a weird sea creature looking thing. Weird sea creature humanoidy looking thing, because he, like, walks on two legs. But eventually, she learns to accept him, and he takes her home to meet his family. There she meets his female mate and his Ooloi mate. Each Onloki family, it turns out, has an Ooloi mate, which is neither male nor female. The Ooloi are vital to the Onloki's survival. They have the ability to alter genes of living species they call gene alteration trading. unloki. Wants to trade with humans to
0: create a new own species. collie. Own collie, is that
1: what we're calling it now?
0: I, yeah, no, that you 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 keep going back and forth between two pronunciations. I think it's supposed to be own collie.
1: Own collie. The own collie want to trade with humans to create a new species. Part human, part own collie. Lilith is disgusted by this prospect and is told that it will be her duty to teach other humans how to deal with the own collie and how to live on Earth after society has been destroyed. Lilith lives with the family, the family of Onkali that we mentioned earlier, and becomes the charge of the family's child, who is an, how do we say that? Uloi.
0: Uloi. Uloi. Yeah.
1: There's a lot of hard-to-read words in this book, for the English speaker, at least. Ninkanj. Okay, so that's the name of the Ulu Uloi child, and Ninkanj teaches Lilith about Onkali society, and she teaches it, English, and about human culture. So Nikanj doesn't have a gender. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to try to remember that. And in the book, it it is referred to as it. That is the pronoun that is used for the Uloi. So Lilith stays with Nikanj during its adolescent transformation. So like they have an adolescent sort of thing too, and it's really painful. And she's just like there for it during this time and becomes a part of the new family because once Nikanj transforms it gets a new family with two unlucky mates that it can have sex and make babies with i guess and um <laughs> eventually she starts awakening other humans because that have been captive to teach them how to rebuild their society under the own Kali's influence so people become trustful of lilith's leadership in part because she's a woman and also because she's like able to do things like the onkali can do, which the humans don't know yet, that the onkali can do them. They just know that she's like able to do weird sort of alien things. And many of them refuse to believe that they're captives of extraterrestrials because they haven't met any of these creatures yet. And so despite the discontent, she still manages to make a few friends and eventually actually has a human mate named Joseph. So after that, the Onkali come in, or the Ulu come in, and they start mating with the humans. And then things, like, get really bad. And a couple of people try to start, like, a war with them, kind of. And Joseph gets killed, and Lilith is really sad. And she doesn't want to lose Nikanj. Is that his name? What did mm-hmm. we decide? Nikanj. Yeah, she doesn't yeah. want to lose its name. I apologize. I'm misgendering it. She doesn't want to lose Nikanj, so she ends up, like, stripping... In the middle of the battlefield and like holding on to it. And the humans see this and now they're really distrustful of her because this is like a really intimate act to do with an extraterrestrial. And so eventually all of the humans get sent back to Earth and the Onkali decide that it's too dangerous to send Lilith back. So she stays on the spaceship and we find out that Nikonj has impregnated Lilith without her consent.
0: I think the only, (laughs) sorry. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I think the only thing I would add to that is that the whole overarching thing here is that 250 years ago, Earth was destroyed by some combination of climate change and like extremely dangerous, like World War III situation. The Onkali came and saved kind of whoever was left at the time and had to keep them asleep for a long time, A, so that the Onkali could not be poisoned by the humans, they had to genetically modify everyone so that they could all interact. But B, just because the humans were essentially so fucking freaked out by what had happened. Um, but their whole goal is that the Onkali have been healing Earth, although it is also forever changed. And they're trying to create humans or human Onkali hybrids, essentially, to send back to this new Earth to repopulate and restart and and build again. And also, it's important to note that this is this process is how Onkali survived. They've been doing it for generations and generations with numerous different species. Like this is this is almost their purpose in life is to do these genetic modifications and essentially create new Onkali human or Onkali and other species hybrids. And I just want to point that out because I think that's an important part of the premise that has to color kind of the way we see what happens in the rest of the book.
1: Okay. Yeah. So what do you want to talk about first? There is a lot here. This was a really interesting book and there's like a lot, and I guess maybe do you want to start with difference first? because? That's kind of, I don't know.
0: I think that's fine with me. So for me, I think the the big themes of this story, and Harmony has pulled out most of them as well, is the idea of hierarchy, which I phrased a little bit more as being about family and motherhood relationships in that hierarchy. Difference, like anthropological differences between humans and this other race. Consent is really the big one, the biggest one. And also gender and sexuality constructs, which plays into sexual relationships with the own collie and also between the humans. And a little bit about voice and power. Would you agree are those kind of like the main things that are happening in this book?
1: Those are the main things. I don't think consent is the biggest necessarily I would argue that hierarchy is different and I think maybe our I wonder if I don't know I wonder if our definitions of hierarchy differ
0: I think they might in terms
1: of the book, yeah because you said mother stuff and I was like huh I don't know if that's uh
0: what I picked up we can start with the differences though yeah for sure
1: well yeah yeah. just because that's like when we first meet the Ancali that is the big thing humans can't and it kind of plays into hierarchy too at least in my understanding of it humans can't reconcile with difference very well Mm -hmm. and that could also kind of play into race like we were talking about before so the whole thing with difference is that like when when Lilith first meets Jediah, who is the first Uncali she meets, she can't even like look at him. She can't touch him. She's so afraid of him. And as Maggie mentioned before, a lot of the other humans at first tried to kill him when they first met him. And I don't know, I just thought it was a really interesting commentary, I guess. We, we both pulled out passages, but it's also mentioned that like she can't tell the Uncali apart at first.
0: Yeah, it takes her a really long time, not even just to understand the difference in like, broad strokes like genders, but to identify the specific own collie that she has been talking to and living with. Yeah,
1: which... It's probably understandable, but also parallels, I think, a little bit to race, too.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know,
1: people have trouble identifying other people based off of their race. So do you want to pull out some of your passages? I do.
0: I have two that I think really apply to this, but one I think is more applicable than the other, and it actually isn't when Lilith meets the own Collie; it's when Joseph does for the first time, because like directly addresses this. So on page 186, it says... Joseph sighed. I don't understand why the sight of you should scare me so, Joseph said. He did not sound frightened. You don't look that threatening, just very different. Different is threatening to most species, Nikonch answered. Different is dangerous. It might kill you. That was true to your animal ancestors and your nearest animal relatives, and it's true for you. Nikon smoothed its head tentacles. It's safer for your people to overcome the feeling on an individual basis than as members of a large group. That's why we've handled this the way we have. It looked around at individuals and pairs of humans, each with an uloi. So I thought that was really interesting because Nikonj is somehow justifying this fear, trying to use what it understands of like evolution and genetics. But also, I think very purposefully on Butler's part doesn't necessarily bring human-human interactions into the mix, which I find really interesting and kind of foreshadowy about the rest of the book. Because you know, World War III happened, and it's kind of stated in an I would say subtext sort of way that you know at least part of it is like Rachel and religious tensions at the beginning of the book, like why the why the planet was destroyed. It was also stated to be at least partially because of The Cold War, the US versus the USSR. And Nikonj, I can't fucking say it right, almost doesn't seem to get that. Like, because it can see so much of human evolution at this point and, like, understand where humans come from, it almost doesn't understand the way that humans see each other as being very different, which I found interesting.
1: No, I think it kind of does. I think it's a little bit hard because I have read on to the second book, so I don't want to pull too much into that. But like Nikanj points out at, in this book, when she chooses Joseph, Joseph is someone of Asian descent. He's Canadian, but he's of Asian descent. And Lilith is Black. And uh, Nikanj points out that like other Onkali thought that she would end up mating with another Black man someone who looks a little bit more like her, given what they have studied of humans and how they react to difference. And he knew that she was going to choose Joseph for some reason. So I do think that's interesting. I also, I don't know, recently I did a course to teach English abroad and like half the course was about how to deal with culture shock. And I'm only bringing this up because it it talks about how when people are in foreign situations, foreign to them, they immediately, uh, their amygdala, like, reacts to it. And that's why a lot of people end up, like, hating the place that they're in or reacting so strongly to difference, because they're, like, actually stressed out by this different situation. So I think that it's interesting that Nikanj mentions that, because in the real world, humans have discovered a link between our our ideas of difference and like how it affects our brain and how it is thriving to us interesting i didn't actually know that that's a cool factoid yeah (laughs) so like i don't know butler is very smart um (laughs) so but like difference is was ancestrally scary for us and it still continues to be so i think it's interesting that they note that but they are they are ignorant Of humans a lot when it comes to, I don't know, maybe this is like a very Americanized viewpoint, but like towards the desires for freedom and individuality,
0: I would say. Yeah, and I think it's okay to have an Americanized thought process of that in the context of this book, just because the character that we're following is American and Lilith, at the very least, I think has very certain ideas about what freedoms and and consent that she should be able to kind of have and what rights she has over her body. So I think in this case that's like a reasonable reading.
1: Yeah. And I don't know. I the Onkali have like a very they are not a very individualized culture, I would say. Like they they have been forced to accept difference. They do accept difference because they've been forced to to mate with other species. And like even their ship is alive and they have genetically altered that. So like everything on like in their world because they all live in the ship essentially, they don't have a home planet anymore. Everything that they interact with is now a part of their genetic makeup and has been altered and isn't isn't the same as it once was. They're they're always evolving. Everything that they know is always evolving. So I think that's pretty interesting. And they also like they don't communicate through words. They communicate through images, which is with each other, which is very strange, but I wonder if that too has to do with the the lack of individuality because they're able to easily share experiences with one another.
0: I think that lack of individuality, not to move us too far forward in the conversation, but really relates to that hierarchy. On page 48, which is in part two of the novel right at the beginning, when Lilith is brought into Jediah's family for the first time, she has very strong feelings about the collie that aren't... Jediah essentially. She has decided that he is essentially okay. Like I wouldn't go far to say so far to say that she likes him, but she feels relatively dependent on him and has at the very least recognized him to be a compassionate creature after after he has essentially offered her a to him highly immoral escape from this whole situation. And for some reason that she doesn't ever really unpack for herself, she decides not to take it. But she says, and in spite of Jedi's claim that the Onkali were not hierarchical, the Uloi seemed to be the head of the house, everyone deferred to it. So I think that's really interesting, because they're isn't supposed to be a hierarchy and there isn't supposed to be a lot of individualism. And yet, from the Uncali relationships and family dynamics that we see in this book, I think that statement by Lilith is actually really true in that there is both a hierarchy and I think a, a set prescription of, you know, gender identities just like there is on Earth for for this group of people that they don't really seem to recognize in themselves. Or at the very least, if they do, they don't spend a ton of time, Nikanj doesn't spend a lot of time unpacking it in the story. Do
1: you think that that's really Lilith projecting? And before you answer that, I'm going to go back because you're drinking water right now and kind of define how the Ancali are defining hierarchy in this book. So they think that humans are genetically, they're genetically hierarchical. So they're always going to see difference, and they're always going to want to differ. And we kind of see that, like, they they essentially say that, like, World War Three would have happened no matter Mm -hmm. what, because humans believe in a hierarchy. And we just can't get away from that, unless we start making human hybrids in which there is no hierarchy place. But I'm asking you that question about whether or not that might be Lilith projecting, because we see later Lilith meets another human. The first human she meets is called Paul Titus, and he refuses to acknowledge the onkali's Uloi as being actually sexless, and he yeah he prescribes them as male and female still, and he like talks about how
0: they seem to run things. The Uloi, mm-hmm. I think potentially that's true. That it is Lilith projecting. But then at the same time, we do see over and over again certain ways in which the Uloi do run things in the sense that they... So the thing about Onkali culture is that Uloi are the only ones who can actually do this genetic modification. So it kind of, by default, puts them in positions Mm -hmm. of power. And I also think something interesting about the Uloi is that they have, or at least some of them, have misunderstood the hierarchy on earth based on genetics so on for example on page 111 i won't read the whole the whole quote because it's pretty long but nikaj is they call it like same-sex parent kaguat i i think uh, says, I believed that because of the way human genetics were expressed in culture, a human male should be chosen to parent the first group. I think now that I was wrong. So I think that the hierarchy cor- connection, at least, I don't know, I just think it's complicated because the at least some of the Uloi were wrong about the way that the hierarchy on Earth actually worked in the sense of human genetics. And I think that Lilith is projecting, but also maybe isn't projecting because of some inherent power struggles that we see, or at least power dynamics that we see i don't know it's hard Mm. to say because the whole book is from lilith's perspective so it is hard to know like there is no objective sort of view on what their society looks like it's all coming through a human's brain
1: yeah and lilith isn't perfect by any means and she isn't clear on her own feelings for about the
0: uncalling yeah
1: I will say though, it was interesting that you pointed that out about what's his what's its name. Can can you say it? Kaya
0: That's how I was pronouncing it, yeah.
1: Kaya yeah. About Kaya wanting a male to lead the first human group. I would think that does show some that it does demonstrate at least some understanding of human culture because we do tend to be patriarchal. And we see when Lilith starts to try and lead the first group. There's a lot of resistance for her being a woman. There is
0: a lot of resistance. And she also continually, especially, oh God, I, there's so many characters by the end of this book because she wakes up 40 humans for this first, like, parent group. But there are some humans, I think her name was Jean, who start to misgender her and who believe that she is either A, secretly a dude or B, yeah. secretly an own collie. So I, I think there is, I think you're right, but also stand by my original point. I think just in the sense that at the very least, human genetics can't tell you everything about our culture, which is... I think, important because Caillou got's point here was that they it wasn't looking at it from a cultural perspective. It was just looking at it from a genetic perspective initially.
1: Oh, okay. Interesting. I didn't know that because I know they did study the human culture as well before they awoke Willis. It did,
0: but it said specifically human genetics were expressed in culture. So to me, that read more as mm. like taking a genetic versus cultural lens of things. And... Mm. I don't know. I think you're right because we do end up in patriarchal cultures a lot of the time. Then if they're thinking about this as a parental group with Lilith as the head, it would make more sense to have a woman in some ways as like a mother. I have a hard time kind of talking about parts of this book because I think some of it is really dated and shows that it was written in the late 1970s in that it's very, <laughs> or I'm sorry, 1980s, because it's very cisgendered focus, even with this kind of exploration of what it would mean to have a truly Sexless, genderless mm. member of a kind of community, and it's also very hetero. So it's yeah,
1: kind of, I noticed that too. I was like, why do we have like non binary beings, but we don't
0: have any gay people? Yeah, like Lilith <laughs> specifically wakes up a <laughs> hey there, it's Allison Carter. I'm the host of the podcast, Not Your Little Lady. Each episode features a woman living in the South outside of socially accepted norms. Listen and relate as these women share stories about obstacles they faced and how it feels to come out on the other side. We talk about things that pissed us off, the booze we like to drink, and historical women who have made a difference. Through all this, we explore the importance of women owning their past, present, and future while keeping it light and funny. You can find episodes, which are released every other Wednesday, on most podcast listening apps or at NotYourLittleLady.com. Be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at Ladies of NYLL and on Facebook and Instagram at Not Your Little Lady. Happy listening, y'all. Lilith specifically wakes up a woman named Tate first, specifically and I quote, no sexual tension. And I read that. And I was like, oh my
1: God. I had the same reaction, especially because Tate at first, like before we meet her, really seems like she could be gay. Yeah. <laughs>
0: which like is personally one of the reasons I gave this book four stars instead of five stars, because I really loved everything else about this book. And it is progressive in a lot of ways, but it does still fall into a lot of the binaries that were really prevalent in American culture in the late 80s. And I think sometimes makes it, at least for me, a little bit hard to talk about in a contemporary moment, looking at our contemporary world, where I think a lot of our generation, at the very least, is trying to break out of those binaries in everyday culture. And that for me becomes even more challenging when talking about this hierarchical hierarchical aspect of this novel, because that is one of the places I think where it comes out most prevalently is kind of the sort of outdatedness.
1: I understand. Um, To go back to that hierarchical aspect and Kayagat's uh, perspective about human culture, I'm wondering if it seems like at least from Lilith's perspective, as though Kayagat is kind of like, a more boasty, like, strength valuing on Kali. And I wonder if that is why Ka-Yu got thought that it should have been a man at first.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I was sort of thinking about that too. Because um, they don't really dive into that aspect beyond this little paragraph on page 111 about the fact that Ka-Yu got realizes that it was wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's true that to a certain extent at the beginning of the novel, Lilith, again, whether she's just projecting or whether this is how Cayuga actually was, she actually describes it with a lot of, um, I would say, stereotypical, like, manly man qualities, Mm -hmm. like, very sarcastic, very condescending to basic questions, very unwilling to share information for reasons that are beyond Lilith and very boastful and kind of loud in a certain extent. And also Kayuga is one of the only Onkali that Lilith views as being angry in the first part of the book. So I guess I don't really have an answer to that question except for to say that I think that Lilith ends up subconsciously or consciously also as much as she seems to truly think of Uloi as being it, you know, as being this genderless being Mm -hmm. still to a certain extent at the beginning at least ascribes certain kind of human gendered adjectives to kayuga at least you know
1: i don't know do you think butler ever does that to nikonj because like i sometimes did have trouble when like thinking of nikonj and thinking like uh, like i sometimes thought he and other characters do that in the book and that could just be like my own at bias but like sometimes it did happen it happened in this podcast I think like a few minutes ago
0: <laughs> yeah see I had trouble getting it out of, at the beginning I found it pretty easy and then Paul yeah. mentioned that and after that point I was like yeah I guess so. I think at the very least that Nikonj is more successfully genderless than Caillou Gott is in Butler's writing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's partially just because we spend, so, we see Nikonj a lot. We see Nikonj as a kid. We see Nikonj as an adult. We see Lilith's relationship with it evolve. So I think that when you have a more nuanced character, it's easier to get a full picture of them, regardless of what gender or sex they are and, and see a lot more of their descriptors essentially. So I think for me, Less Mm -hmm. so, but it is possible that, like, you know, obviously Butler was also a human. It's really, really hard to actually write a character that would not, I think, fit into any concept of gender that we have as a species, you know?
1: That's fair. That's very fair. I think it's also... We were talking a little bit about the Uloi and their hierarchical presence within the society. And I think that the Onkali themselves have different like ideas of gender roles the women tend to be larger than the men do mm-hmm. and it's also interesting they usually end up mating with their siblings and the uloi are important because like that is the only way and we see this later happen to humans the only way the oncali get it on <laughs> like they don't have sex unless yeah. there's an uloi present
0: yeah, yeah yeah because male and females don't touch because they're humans you know like i think yeah. something interesting about the idea of mates is that this whole mating situation is much more of, I think what we would describe as a family situation in that the male and females are typically siblings. Mm -hmm. Um, not always. Uh, Jediah and his mate are actually cousins because they happen to not like their siblings, but they're always related. So I think that the idea of mate in this book is being played with, interestingly, because the Uloi are the only ones that have sexual relationships with anyone. Yeah, And mate is a much broader term than how we typically think of it.
1: Yes, it is. And the another thing about the Onkali is that like they seem to value family a lot. And I don't know if it's They seem to value, like, I don't want to say it's more than humans do because I know this book was written in the 80s and there's, like, a different perspective towards family than there is even now. But in my lens, like, it did seem a little bit more than, like, the humans valued family. They tend to, like, stay with their family groups. Like, they don't usually wander to other, I guess, tribes would be the right word or, like, other villages that have different families.
0: Yeah, I think something that's extra important to, at the very least in the context of what we know in Dawn, is that there are three different kinds of Onkali, essentially, and we are looking at the kind of Onkali that is specifically going to go to Earth. The other two kinds are going to go somewhere else. Some of them are taking humans with them, but for the most part, like the the Onkali that we're working with are a specific, I don't think race is the appropriate term here, but like Almost a different species of Own or it's going to be a different species of Own because it's mating with humans specifically. So yeah. I think that's important. At the very least, family there is you stay with your own type. I, I guess I, there's no way to talk about it without sounding weird, but like you stay with the with the kind of job you're supposed to be doing at the very least. Because all three of these these tribes have different jobs within the within the race. And also Leaving an Uloy alone without the people that it has scent marked, it literally gets sick. It stops yeah. functioning. So yeah. I would totally agree with you that on that scent, sen- sen- pff- that sentiment is really correct. Like, family is how you stay physically healthy, you know? Well, yeah, it's kind of like,
1: to me, a beautiful sort of notion. And they also are different in that, like... They value living things way more than people do. Their entire ship is living and everything that they interact with is living. And they won't let humans kill other species. Like on their ship, they have this sort of like fake earth going on and they have real animals and stuff and they won't let humans kill them. I mean, they do eventually because that they believe that like humans should do whatever humans
0: do. The Onkali won't kill animals for them. They're completely yeah. a vegetarian society.
1: Yeah, so I found that really interesting as well.
0: I think, though, that that jumps into the consent portion of this book really well, because they have respect for living things, but they don't have respect for living things' ability to make their own choices to a certain extent, Uh, especially the older generations of Onkali. Nikanj Mm -hmm. tries, I would say. Jadiah tries, too. Oh, yeah, but I mean, compared to, like kagu or um it's it's same-sex parent like it's same-sex grandparent nikanjas um who we meet for a little while when is struggling to deal with lilith they wait
1: what same-sex grandparent what is this i don't oh, remember this yeah
0: yeah when nikonj when Nikanj is told that it needs to transform lilith's brain to understand the language without uh-huh. its consent it is own who is nikonj's same-sex grandparent
1: who is oh. sitting there
0: being like no you don't ask for consent it doesn't matter what this thing wants you're just gonna fucking do it and that's when mm-hmm. one of the first conversations that nikonj and um lilith have about consent and the fact that nikonj thinks it's wrong like really wrong to do it without talking to lilith first Mm -hmm. and at this point in the novel is when it makes the promise that it won't do anything without lilith's consent which yeah
1: which your body's consenting
0: yeah (laughs) It it understands consent in a much different way than humans do at the very least. Um, but I think also makes the idea of consent in this book challenging to a certain extent, because it's weird to be so angry on Lilith and really all of the humans behalf to be like, these people don't really want what you're doing. And they also have a really important conversation about coercion in this novel as well. And the fact that like, Even when the humans are consenting, they aren't really consenting because they don't have Mm -hmm. a ton of choices in the option. And they're drugged. And they're drugged and like all of this other stuff. But then also have this weird context of like, at least personally, I kind of liked Nikanj. it, It really cared about Lilith, I think. And it tried to understand. And so it was like really conflicting for me, at least, to be so angry and then also be like, but like kind of cinnamon bun look at it. Yeah, It is so cute. And it's trying so hard. I found, <laughs> I just found that emotionally to be very disconcerting, <laughs> you know? Yeah,
1: I think it's, I, I think it's just the understanding of difference too, right? Like these, it's an entirely different species. It doesn't have the same, the Oncali as a whole do you really try hard to understand humans and to understand their wants. and they have an advantage because they're able to, like, open up the genes. But they're also kind of, like, able, when they, like, have sex, to, like, experience the feelings that humans experience. So
0: And intensify the experience that the humans are having at the time.
1: Yes. And, like, they feel it even more. So when Lilith, let's say, has a child, for instance, like, she, Nikanji says, at least, did want it. And this also comes up with when the kanji like sleeps with Joseph and Lilith, essentially. It it knows that Joseph wants to have this feeling, but Joseph can't let himself say it. Or Lilith can't let herself say it. Which also kind of goes back to that whole, I don't know if it's an individuality thing, but like the Unkali don't write. And there's a big, there's like a little scene in this book in which Lilith is really struggling to like have reading materials, have writing materials, have something to like mark that she was here. And that's something that the Oncali just don't do. They don't have any need for it. They have memories that last forever. And they have the ability to, you know, experience things without speaking. So I don't know.
0: It's I think that's really important to bring up too, because it Lilith doesn't get those reading and writing materials until after her brain has been altered to have that memory and to have... Not, and to be able to speak and understand Onkali effortlessly that's when they give her all of that stuff and they also interestingly don't actually explain why Nikanj was against giving her writing and reading material beforehand. Nikanj just kind of says no a lot uh, and then well, she gets it Kaya and then it, like, says no too yeah but Kaiyagat says no because Nikanj said no because oh. Lilith is Nikonja's charge, which is interesting because Nikonja at this time is a child. It has not reached adolescence yet and is, in fact, purposefully delaying adolescence until it can prove that it can have this relationship and teach Lilith, which is a whole other thing that we'll get into in a second. But to go back to your original point, I think something kind of disturbing about the own collie that made me also reflect what we do with genetic and animal testing as humans, which Lilith also brings up a lot in the book. Is that how she feels compared to an animal? But, um, I think she's talking to Jediah at this point, and he says, yes, intelligence does, ina- does enable you to deny facts you dislike, but your denial doesn't matter. A cancer growing in someone's body will go on growing in spite of denial. And A complex combination of genes that work together to make you intelligent as well as hierarchical will still handicap you whether you acknowledge it or not. Which I think is both interesting and disturbing, because I think that whole idea is really what justifies to the own colleague kind of doing whatever they want like they recognize that humans are intelligent but they justify it by being essentially like we are more intelligent because we understand more of what makes you you so to speak than you Mm -hmm. do and like i said before that just it just really made me think about the genetic testing we do on things that we assume are less intelligent than us like animals and stuff um without their consent it was, yeah. it was very disturbing. That whole thought process to me was very disturbing.
1: <laughs> it It is disturbing. It's also, I don't know, like maybe a little bit correct, though. I know that that sounds really bad, but like I think that this book is kind of pushing us to think about this stuff in new ways. Like they do know more about the humans than the humans know. And that's why the issue of consent is such... A big thing here because they're just not valuing what the humans are telling them because they know so much.
0: Yeah. And I think something important about consent here is that it happens in multiple different contexts. So there is like flat out consent. There are moments, there are major triggers in this book for sexual assault and rape, I would say. They aren't explicit scenes, but they do come up multiple times. So there's kind of very traditional, so to speak, sexual consent. But then there's also consent regarding whether you can even consent with like the whole gaslighting intelligence thing there's also consent about just your own body in the sense of like medical procedures and control over your own fertility um and just lots of different ways that consent comes up in this Mm -hmm. novel that is both intensely a feminist issue and also um more broadly just like what control do we have over what surgeries we get, essentially? And, like, do we want our cancer cured? And do we even want to be taking birth control?
1: <laughs> yeah. Because the humans end up... Well, I don't know if that comes up. Never mind. I'll, I'll backtrack. <laughs> but, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I also think it's interesting too, because I don't think that the Onkali do think of humans as animals because they are explicitly attracted to them, or at least the Uloi are. And that's why they need to have this trading program. which like, is They a, physically need it.
0: Which is a shift as well. Initially, at the beginning of the novel, Onkali, especially Uloi, are not sexually attracted to humans. It says it because uh, so Lilith is with Nikanj as it essentially sexually matures and mm. she stays with it mostly instead of its mates because its mates are like known to tease an, Uloy that is in um, this kind of stage because it's just sexually aroused and frustrated all the time, essentially. Um, and so it asks Lilith to stay with it instead because Lilith at this point is totally neutral and will not sexually stimulate it. And then by the end of the novel, it's, like, a whole different (laughs) ballgame. So
1: I'm wondering if you think that's because, like, because Nikanj was a child, right? Or if, like, if this is actual sexual stimulation, because in in the first part of this book, that is what Nikanj says. Nikanj says that, like, Nikon, conj- before it matures, has to like go into Lilith and like fix some genetic stuff about her so that she can be like more powerful and strong so that she can help lead these new humans. And it tells her that it's going to hurt, but it's like not sexual because it doesn't feel sexual t- towards her. It's just a neutral thing. Because Lilith is like, this is like a child that Lilith is working with and she feels weird about having sex with it. But yeah, then later on in the book... All of the uloi are essentially like helping the humans. I guess it's the human emotion, so maybe that's the the neutral part. But like, they are seducing the the humans, and there are like, there's not sexual feelings towards the uloi, but there are sexual feelings towards the pleasure that the uloi could give the humans. So I don't
0: know. Like, I'm just like, I don't understand. It's really <laughs> weird. I think one thing that I am. Um kind of confused about is whether every single genetic change made in a human is supposed to be a sexual experience for an uloy or if it's just the like specific seduction like we're all gonna have sex and I'm gonna heighten everyone's experience thing like I for me, That was kept kind of ambiguous, to be perfectly honest, because when I read that first change, I didn't read that as being a sexual encounter, to be totally honest with you. It wasn't until Harmony pointed it out to me a couple of hours ago where it was like, oh, but like pretty much everything that happens after with genetic changing kind of starts becoming sexual, where you have to start rereading that first experience and be like, oh, what the fuck is happening here? You know,
1: maybe it's like yeah, we're we're unclear about this. If you have thoughts, please message us, Catherine, yeah. if you're listening, message us, let us know what we're thinking. But yeah, I wonder if it's like just if it if maybe if it's the uloy is having sex with like a mate. But yeah, they are able to like give pleasurable feelings, and that starts becoming seductive. And it seems like it seems like the uloy like when Nikanj has this thing with joseph where he ends up changing joseph like that seems like a sexual experience and that's where it really hit for me because at first it was just nakonj and joseph and then nakonj like invites lilith in is like why should you be out left alone come to
0: my like which is polyamory which is a really (laughs) weird scene because lilith who was so concerned about consent this entire fucking time and she probably knows at least on some level that like the reason they're doing this while Joseph is knocked out is because Joseph wouldn't consent verbally, probably. And, like, she just hops into bed. She's like, fuck, yes, I know the sex is so good with Anuloi. Like, she really is just like, bing, bing, boom, like, let's get in bed, you know? It is really weird. And I wonder, too, if Lilith's
1: perspective on consent has become more uncalled Like, I I don't...
0: I think that's huge to be perfectly honest (laughs) because to a certain extent she keeps her very stringent ideas about consent the entire time but then also sometimes she doesn't and her and nikonj really influence each other's ideas of consent like one of i think the most important conversations about consent they have happens on page 100 and nikon nikonj is talking to her right after she almost gets raped by paul Uh, And she fights Paul off and is, like, very injured. Um, And Nikonj tells Lilith that it has altered her reproductive system just for, like, birth control purposes. And Lilith is, like, kind of okay with it because at least she can't get pregnant, but also kind of not okay with it. And it says, did you really need to know Lilith? Yes, she said. It concerned me I needed to know. It said nothing for a while, and she did not disturb its thoughts. I will remember that, it said softly, finally. And she felt as though she had communicated something important, finally. So I think that we see in this scene Lilith altering Nikonj's perspective on consent. And then in little ways like that, the actions of Lilith, I think we see the way that Nikonj has kind of influenced the way she thinks about that. And I think also this conversation is what makes the betrayal of the pregnancy at the end so much more potent is that for a really long time after this, really until this pregnancy scene, Nikaj does seem to honor Lilith's wishes for the most part, or at the very least forewarns her before it does anything and like they talk about the things until this moment. So I think that makes the pregnancy like a real ass betrayal because it knows that Lilith would give a fuck and it doesn't and it doesn't anyways
1: yeah I don't know it's interesting like part of me thinks it's good that Lilith's concepts are being altered because that's going to help her survive maybe throughout the series Mm -hmm. right like we need to adapt to new things and be able to reconcile with difference and part of me like the human feminist harmony is like, "Oh my god, this is really awful. This guy like gave her a baby without her consent and knew that Lilith was really against this." And then I'm also wondering like how like if if Nikanj had to do this, like if this was something Nikonj would have been forced to do anyway and Lilith kind of knew because the whole point of having humans, although yeah, I don't know. The whole point of having humans trade is so that they can make babies so that like the on un- species can survive so yeah. i don't know
0: yeah I, I don't the, know. Whole, <laughs> the whole thing the whole thing is just so conflicting and difficult like i was saying earlier i like all of the characters that are main characters and mm-hmm. it makes it really hard to just be like you made a bad decision and you made a bad decision especially yeah. when Like you were saying before, there is, I think, some evidence that Butler is putting out that like the own colleague do kind of know what's best, but it just feels so fucked up. It feels so fucked up to to just be like, yeah, but that so like they should just get to do whatever they want because of that, you know?
1: No, they shouldn't. But it is an interesting, I don't know. I'm coming off of this book immediately after like taking my course, which teaches me how to be more adaptable to difference because I may in the future be in a place in which my ideas about individuality and consent are going to be like very directly challenged so I don't know I guess I'm like reading it from a more adaptable perspective but Mm -hmm. I do think it's I don't know I don't know I don't know like the the fact that we're having this conversation is important because in the real world in our society consent is important and we should all respect it and for sure yeah this book brings up a lot of things like we talked about before like coercion and drugged consent and yeah there's a difference like there are so many republicans today who talk about like oh she wanted it and because like the woman's body sometimes when a woman is raped or even a men when a men were raped like sometimes your body reacts a certain way even if you don't want to have sex with someone so it could be very triggering this book but it's also different it, it's also just fascinating because it's a completely different world and perspective and it does force us to really like think about why why consent is so important to us as humans
0: and i think something that's really interesting about the way butler frames this conversation is that she doesn't just frame it between the humans and the own collie it's also something that the humans struggle with between themselves something that i think is really important to talk about is the scene where kurt and one other man try and kidnap one of the last people that lilith Awakes. who's a woman named Allison. It's on page 176.
1: Two men holding a struggling woman between them, the trio was prevented from reaching any of the bedrooms by Lilith's people who stood blocking the way, and Lilith's people were prevented from reaching the trio by several of Peter's people. A standoff. Potentially deadly. What the hell is she saving herself for? Jean was demanding. It's her duty to get together with someone. There aren't that many of us left. It's my duty to find out where I am and how to get free, Allison shouted. Maybe you want to give whoever's holding us prisoner a human baby to fool around with, but I don't. We pair off, Kurt bellowed, drowning her out. One man, one woman. Nobody has the right to hold you. It just causes trouble. There's our heteronormativity for you. Oh,
0: yeah, for sure. <laughs> and then I, I would pair that with page 178 when Lilith comes in and stops the situation.
1: There'll be no rape here, she said evenly. She raised her voice. Nobody hears property. Nobody here has the right the use of anybody else's body. There'll be no back-to-the-stone-age caveman bullshit. She let her voice drop to normal. We stay human, we treat each other like people, and we get through this like people. Anyone who wants to be something less will have his chance in the forest. There'll be a plenty of room for him to run away and play at being an ape.
0: I think that those two I mean that scene but those two sections specifically put together for me highlighted some of the most important messages in this book which I think plays back into the hierarchy that we were talking about earlier about men versus or over women you know the patriarchy Uh, but also that this whole idea of consent like all of these humans are fucking pissed off with the idea of consenting or not consenting to the own collie and yet still can't get it through their bone skulls that like the people among them have the right to consent to what's happening among the humans as well. And it really just brought so home to me, this like message of consent being in this book as complicated as it is, but also as stupidly simple, right? Like it should just be someone's choice and that's it. And all of these other factors is making it overcomplicated and causing problems. Yes, it should be. It isn't in reality, but it, but like that's what it
1: should be. Even in this book, I'm just trying to like. I think the hierarchical thing you said here is really important, and that passage for me brought up a lot of like. Throughout this book, humans are described as dangerous and hierarchical and I see a lot of the parallel of hierarchy directly related to men because we are looking at this from Lilith's perspective and Lilith in this book does have a scene in which she is almost raped by a man and sees men as very dangerous but it also like turns out to be true the women are also dangerous like they're less likely to be dangerous in this book than the men are and the whole caveman ape bullshit it's just like I don't know like it how can you be both intelligent and hierarchical like I'm wondering if that in of itself is what the Ancali were referring to
0: I think it was to be to be honest like I think that this is just one of the absolute key scenes in the book where it's like yeah, this is why World War Three or whatever was always going to fucking happen, you know?
1: But is it, like, men's fault? Like, are we singling out men? Or, like, do women also have that capacity? Is that why it's so important that Lilith was a woman and that, like, she mothered these other, these humans, even though they don't accept her as a mother?
0: Yeah, I think, I, I don't think that we're singling out men here. And I think that the scene that we already talked about with Lilith and Joseph and Nikanj kind of... uh at the very least, hints at the same predilection for women. Um, I think Lilith, especially after her um, encounter with Paul, feels especially suspicious of men. Um, But I do think that that is part of the reason that it was important that Lilith was a woman and that she was kind of this, like, mother-parent-leader figure, but Mm -hmm. I think it's also interesting because Lilith, to survive and to take leadership, had to become more dangerous.
1: Yeah. She had to become, like, that's why people think she's a man, because she had to become physically stronger, and she is stronger than, like, any of the other humans and has the capability of killing them with her hands.
0: Yeah, to quote that 2006 song, she is, in fact, harder, faster, better, and stronger.
1: I don't know this song, but I appreciate your quote.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. This book was just really good and really complicated. (laughs) Yes, if
1: you have not read it at this point, God, I hope you have because we've spoiled Spoiled so much for you. But it, it
0: really is worth reading. Like, Butler really just has a way of turning the mirror back on humanity and what we're up to, even in this otherworldly ship you know
1: yes yes she does it's it's just crazy
0: i think something thematically we haven't touched on that is important is lilith's past before all of this because something that keeps getting brought up even though it's difficult for her to talk about is that lilith before she was anything else, it seemed like she was a very, I mean, we she's 26 when this book starts. I mean, obviously, plus 250 years, but biologically, she's 26, 28, maybe by the time she wakes up because she was in and out for two years. But yeah. she had a husband and a son who were killed in a car crash. And after that grief, she decided to go to college to study anthropology. And I think that both of those experiences are also reasons that the own chose her. One Mm -hmm. of which we talk about with Paul, which is the fact that Lilith went through natural childbirth with no pain medications and all of that. She wasn't in a hospital. She was in a birthing center. Yeah, she was
1: physically strong before the oncology changed her, too. That's important.
0: And and also likely to be able to survive a birthing process in a forest, (laughs) probably because of that. But also, uh, she was already a mother who I would think the young collie might assume would potentially be interested in children and maybe becoming a mother again. they test her during the awakening by giving her a child that isn't her own to teach and to nurture and to love, and then rather cruelly take him away from her. Excuse me, and the anthropology thing i I think is also important because Lilith is like aware. Oh, <laughs> that she should almost be treating this like field work. She talks about it with Paul. She's like, I suppose I could think of this as field work, but how do I, but the how how the hell do I get out of the field? So like in theory, Lilith is also probably a prime choice because she's naturally interested in tribal, uh, not tribal culture in the sense of like an indigenous thing, but just the way that like humans tend to form tribes of like, like people, like thoughts and things like that. And all of that, in her past, I think really highlights how like terrifyingly smart the own Collie were when they chose her, you know? Uh, And I think that those themes of understanding cultural differences and motherhood in that sense come through with Lilith's character again and again and again during Dawn.
1: Okay. When you were talking about anthropology, you also related it to race though, which I think is interesting.
0: Because she relates it to race briefly in that so on page 87 this conversation she has with paul is uh, i had gone back to school she said i was majoring in anthropology she laughed bitterly i suppose i could think of this as field work but how the hell do i get out of the field anthropology he says frowning oh yeah i remember reading some stuff by margaret mead before the war so you wanted to study people what people and tribes Different people anyway, people who didn't do things the way we did them. Where were you from, he asked, Los Angeles. So I think that that, at the very least, has an oblique reference to race. Yeah. As I think a lot of this book does, right? Like, this whole oncology versus human thing is all about the way humans understand difference. But she does, I think, to a certain extent with that quote, recognize both her own training and her own shortcomings in this circumstance because of that training yeah yeah and she's more open to difference yeah which is she also something we didn't talk about so the own collie when it comes to all of the awakened people 28 of them come in all at once and they essentially pick these mated pairs of male and female humans for the most part or in a, a couple of select cases they just kind of put two people together to bond with their uloy. But Lilith gets like the hard version of it essentially. She when she is awakened for the final time, it is just her and Jediah in a room alone together, specifically because they have an inkling that she will be able to overcome and adapt without other humans around her. And I also think to be fair something interesting as well is that they make references to the fact that lilith is not the first person they tried for this role a there are multiple other humans who are awake and have chose to stay with own chose as all of these choices are and have chosen mm-hmm. to stay with own society um but also like judiah has been attacked by people they've tried to put in this position before he's been disparaged by them the Uloi are scared of the responses that some of the humans gave and like their capability of violence toward the unknown, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, as much as the Onkali picked well with Lilith, they're also not infallible because they picked wrong a bunch of times before, essentially.
1: Yeah, and even some of the people Lilith awakens, who for the most part all kind of are disappointing. <laughs> yeah. Even the people at see Awakens, like a lot of them were in the running to be Lilith.
0: Like Joseph, who ends up being her mate, for lack of a better word. But I think the idea that the Onkali aren't infallible, both physically, as we see during that major battle scene where Nikanj is genuinely almost killed, but also here comes back to the idea of consent we were talking about before, which is that the Onkali are not always right. And yeah. they act like they are when they're making these choices for humans.
1: Yes, that's very fair. I want to talk before we wrap up about Tate. Do you want to touch on anything else in this topic? Or like, because I just want to know your reaction to Tate's betrayal. That really hurt me. That was the most struggle for me
0: in the book. <laughs> I, yeah, that was hard. That was really hard. I think almost Gabe hurt me. I think I was more prepared for it because Gabe had already betrayed. Lilith. Yeah, but then she goes along with Gabe. And then she goes along with Gabe, which is, like, really difficult. But I think something that I struggled with was... Yes, I was hurt by that betrayal as well. But then also, like, uh, like it or not, especially for Gabe at that point, they were altered to be chemically connected to a certain way, and, like, you have to wonder how much choice she had in that matter of, like, leaving and being with him or not, which is extra complicated because at that point, because they weren't with their uloy, they were being physically repelled b- from each other. Yeah.
1: So, wait, were they altered to, like, be each other's mates for forever? Or is that...
0: I think so. I think that was an oh, implication I... in the story.
1: Oh, I just thought that that was, like, a very human thing that people were doing. And it really hurt me, like, as a modern reader, like... I don't know. The idea of being betrayed by your your friend, especially over a guy, like, really fucking sucks. But also, I really liked Tate because Tate is very clearly, like, an individual with ADD. And that's why she seems to, like, be a good choice to pick for the Awakening because she's, like, able to adapt to these environments
0: better. Something I thought really interesting about Tate was that the Uloi who was looking at her thought that she was more Uloi Uloy than human in the way that she acted, because Tate was described, at least in her former life, as being a very manipulative person, or could be, but she never manipulated to cause pain, and whenever she got to that point, she stepped away from those relationships. It was apparently also a great matchmaker. So. Yeah. I ju- Yeah, it hurt. It was bad. I didn't like Tate at first, just because I think Lilith was so clearly annoyed at her at the beginning during the awakening process. But, like, their friendship clearly did get deeper. I think, though, for me, the thing that hurt most was, like, the way her and Joseph's relationship ended. Because um, Joseph is murdered by Kurt, who is kind of like the big, ultimately becomes the big baddie of the, of the humans, just like can't fucking figure, like stand what is happening, and, and sort of has a meltdown very violently. Um, And Joseph ultimately decides that he is also not okay with this whole situation and wants to explore, because they've been put on this part of the ship that's been made to seem like Earth, and like they, they aren't convinced that they're not on Earth, which like, fair enough but I think it just really hurt me that Joseph made Lilith choose between Nikaj and him almost even more than like the fact that Tate and Gabe were involved, because I think that for, I guess for me, it it just like, like Lilith has come to think of Nikaj and its mates as her family, whether she likes it or not. She even talks to one of, her i guess nikaj's female mates at some point in the at, during the awakening time and she says it is so surprising how like amazing it is to hear your voice right now and i think it was just a really brutally unfair <laughs> i felt emotionally tormented by like the choice between whatever family you have left no matter how complicated and fucked up your relationship is and this human connection that you have with someone who you really clearly love and like being made to choose between that, that I think that by the time the Tate thing happened, I was just so emotionally dead inside. I was like, sure, why not this too?
1: Yeah. I don't know. I think it was also maybe different for you because you, you read it as them being like, as them like genetically having to go with their partners, but I don't know. I didn't, I I wonder if that's still a thing. I don't yeah, know. We'll talk about it next book, I guess. Cuz I don't know if that's true. But maybe you're I don't. Right. Know.
0: I guess the I guess the impression I got for that was like the whole thing about the fact that Nikaj chose Joseph for her but like didn't choose him in the sense that he per- it purposefully didn't modify jo- Joseph. Yeah. But then also they have a conversation at some point where Nikanj is complimenting Lilith on par- putting certain people together and not putting certain people together. So maybe yeah. it is not that. I don't know. I think it's at the very least kind of vague. <laughs> because yeah. with all because with all at the very least of the drugging and the chemicals, like certain people are drawn together and are drawn to their Uloi at least.
1: Yeah. And the Uloi are drawn to them. It's weird with Nikanj and um Lilith, because, like, they didn't choose each other. Nikanj didn't choose Lilith. But, like, the other Uloi, they are drawn to their partners. Like, and the other chooses Tate and Gabrielle.
0: And the other, I think, important thing about it is that Lilith is the only one who meets Nikanj when it's a child. All of the other Uloi are, you know, like, fully formed Uloi with their own mates and their own families as well When they, <laughs> when they, when they meet their humans, too. Yeah, I guess those were my feelings on Tate. I agree that that betrayal really stung and really hurt. I, I think was emotionally attached to her because I was like, yes, an ADD character. <laughs> I think something I wish, and I mean, maybe this is just because I have a love for longer books for the most part, Butler writes very short, concise books, is I do wish we had a little bit like a hundred more pages in this book to get a little bit more attached to all the characters. The first, the second part of this book to the third part of this book does a huge time jump where you really miss all of the bonding that Lilith and Akaj do together. And you just kind of have to take it for granted that like, she is now part of its family and she's not fine with that, but like as fine with that as she's ever going to be and like has relationships with all of these people. Yeah, And I wish we had a little bit more time to see that relationship explored as well as more of her relationship with her human counterparts. We see a lot of her and Joseph and we see a lot of her and Joseph talking to their friend group, but we don't see a lot of her and Tate together just as two people, except for at the very beginning where Lilith like doesn't know what to make of Tate and is a little bit pissed off at her for at least some of the time. Understandably and understandable for Tate feeling the way that she did, which was, you know, disoriented. Who the fuck are you? Are you lying to me? You know, etc. Yeah. I just wish we had a little bit more time to explore some of those, like, interpersonal relationships.
1: I get that. The only reason, I mean, like, she also stuck out to me because she is the only human, like, even more so than Joseph, that gets, like, such a long, like, paragraphs and paragraphs of descriptions before she's awakened. It's true. But that's also because she was the first one awakened, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Lilith chose her, and that's, but it's, like, a non-sexual choice, and that that's what I think struck me about it.
0: Non-sexual to the point of being <laughs> weird. <laughs> no, sexual, no tension. sexual tension
1: yes of course yeah you don't know you don't know lilith gosh all right are we do we want to wrap up what are you reading right now mags
0: i'm reading a couple of different things actually i'm about to obviously start adulthood rights because the next <laughs> episode for that comes out in two weeks uh and then i'm also reading the raven tower by ann leckie and i'm listening i'm really late to the train on this but i'm listening to *Illuminate* by ann kaufman and jay kristoff on audio and oh my god it is in fact as good as the hype said it was especially the audiobook the audiobook is done by a full cast of characters and it's like what is it called it's called Illuminae Illuminate. okay Uh, interesting it's a YA sci-fi I'm reading a lot of sci-fi right now for someone who's not super into that genre but it's a YA sci-fi like space opera sort of situation that came out in like 2014 2015 and it was really popular at the time the last book in the trilogy came out maybe two years ago and i just kind of like stumbled upon it and heard that the audiobook was good and i was like i'll give it a try and it it is in fact as good as it (laughs) as good as the hype said
1: interesting i'll have to give
0: that a listen what are you listening to or what are you reading
1: well, I mean, I am, I, I'm reading adulthood, right? <laughs> I finally finished uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I don't know if we made a podcast announcement about that. No, you That won't. happened several weeks ago. <laughs> yeah,
0: we, we haven't made an episode since that happened. She's finally done, y'all. Yeah, I'm finally done. I also,
1: like, I just want to tell people, like, I do, I audiobook a lot. And I've finished several audiobooks that, like, sometimes even Maggie doesn't get to know about. But right now I did I did finish one audiobook that Maggie had recommended, which is called It's the Winter One with the Bear. Oh, The Bear and the Nightingale. Yes. So I finished that one. And I right now I'm like audio booking I'm still audiobooking the Ghost Bride because I took a break to finish my winter bear one. And then I'm audiobooking the second book in that series, which is
0: Uh, it's not the winter of the witch. Oh fuck, what is it?
1: I don't know. Here, wait. Let me let me pull up my app. <laughs>
0: Okay, it's called yeah. "The Girl in the
1: Tower." The Girl in the Tower by Catherine Arden. All right, Mad Mags, what are uh, uh, what's what's your homework for this episode?
0: Complicated. I I think that, especially in light of uh, what's happened in the United States recently, uh, <laughs> for those for those of you who are curious, oh it's the sixth of January, twenty twenty, when we were recording this. So it's been busy. <laughs> uh, I think that continuing my political activity to try and get the fuck out of the situation we're in and also continue to try and live a more sustainable life is my uh goals which i know are, are really broad but like those were also especially the sustainable thing were part of my new year's goals and i will say as i was reading this especially hearing about what had happened on earth 250 years ago i was like mm, this is this is a little too close to home right now like i'm not comfortable with this i agree i like finished this book as soon as the iran
1: thing came and out and it was like so was oh like, shit, oh, boy. <laughs> we're here unlock uncally please save us um <laughs> let's see I am going to research that place that I hinted at that I was going before as much as I can without knowing the specifics of the place I'm going to be going (laughs) and try to reconcile difference
0: within myself.
1: Yes. All right. Also, rate and review us. If you send us a review and you give us your address, we will send you stickers with our logo on it. Is there anything else we want to
0: say? Yeah, next week we're talking about Edith Wharton. Specifically, we are reading the first chapter of The Age of Innocence, which is her Pulitzer Prize winning novel that won in 1920. We're doing kind of a look back through the beginnings of decades uh, throughout this season and next season. But the first chapter is pretty short. So we're going to be kind of analyzing Wharton a little bit more broadly as she is someone who I have some expert knowledge on. So look out for that. A little bit of a different kind of look at feminism next week.
1: Do we have a name for that series? I think I've called it like something through the decades or something like that. I don't know. Something through the decades. That something sounds fine to me. <laughs> I, I wasn't calling it something through the decades, but that's fine. That will be our new title. We're going to be doing <laughs> something each month. <laughs> yeah,
0: we, we will be looking each month at a uh, famous story. What, written by a woman at the beginning of of every decade until we we catch up to present time
1: yeah it might not always be a woman because we're thinking about doing one that is like comic books and i don't know if the decade that we're doing will have a woman comic book writer but like we will be focusing on a powerful woman at the very least
0: yeah (laughs) some sort of feminist topic
1: some sort of feminist topic look through it (laughs) look out for it yes okay all right we ready goodbye Goodbye! You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by Bug Days. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.